0: We always want to do the best job that we can in the limited format of a sermon to try and explain the passage that we're dealing with in light of the whole biblical drama. And of course, that's very challenging in 20 or 25 minutes, but we want to do that, especially as we come to a gospel passage, because that's exactly what Jesus does. He explains over and over how his life, how his work, how his death fits into the expectations of the Old Testament how He is their actual fulfillment. And this passage this morning is all about seeing. It's about seeing. And the Old Testament is full of this idea of sight, that God is the one that gives mankind sight, and that God is the one that opens the eyes of the blind, both spiritually, both physically and metaphorically. And we see this especially in Isaiah, where he begins, this prophet writes about the servant of the Lord who will come in power of the Spirit. And he says, he writes, I will take hold of your hand. This is him speaking on behalf of God. I will keep you. I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. What's going on here? Well, what the prophet is talking about is that God is creating the special people, Israel, to be recipients of His grace, to be a special people that know of His grace very intimately in order so that they would be a light to the world, a light to the Gentiles, that through them that blind eyes would be opened. But in our passage that we read just a moment ago, that Brooke read, read for us, we find that Israel has become the ones who are blind. That they reject this servant of the Lord that comes to open blind eyes. They've turned inward. And there's lots of big issues going on in this passage. And as you saw at the very beginning, where does evil come from? Why does this man, why is this man blind? Is it he that sinned or is it his parents? And Jesus gives us a bit of an enigmatic answer there, which we'll have to cover in another sermon or series of sermons because he's not providing here for us an extensive theodicy. He's not answering why is this man blind in the first place. Whose fault is it? But the man's blindness is a stand-in for the human condition. And just as Jesus must give sight to this man's physical eyes, so he must give light to all of our spiritual eyes. But the blind man is not the first person to see in this passage. It's Jesus. As he went along, he saw a man, man blind from birth. Jesus saw him and moves toward him. The disciples are interested in diagnosing who's at fault. They're standing far off and trying to figure out the riddle of whose fault it is that this person is blind. There must be a correlation between this disability and someone's specific sin. And Jesus is saying, "No. You can't make a one-to-one comparison or relationship between something that is going wrong in the world or with a particular person and with a particular sin." That that's incredibly dangerous and speculative. But while the disciples want to theorize at a distance about this man's faith, Jesus sees him. He walks towards him and he heals him. This man was a beggar. No one saw this man. He was ignored, he was overlooked, he was an inconvenience. No one saw this man, but Jesus sees him. If you've ever worked with our church and volunteered down at the Portland Rescue Mission, which is this fantastic ministry that that gives food and shelter to people who are hungry, people who don't have a place to sleep. And one of the things they tell you over and over is as you serve these men and women, look at them in the eyes. Look at them in the eyes and smile because it's probably the first time that anyone has seen them all day long. They're an inconvenience to most people. So look at them and it conveys dignity And worth, and it tells them that they, in fact, are valuable. And Jesus sees this man's suffering and he walks towards it. He's always moving towards pain and not away from it. And this should be incredibly encouraging to you and I. And it also should be very empowering. It's encouraging because Jesus doesn't stand far off from you and I and assign blame to what's going wrong in our lives. He doesn't stand far off and assign blame to our suffering, but he moves in. He steps into our story. He comes close. He sits with us in our pain and even in our sin. And ultimately here, the contrast is being drawn not between those who are blind and those who see. The contrast is actually between those who are blind and know it and those who are blind and refuse to admit it. It's encouraging because it's an acknowledgement of sin, not the absence of sin, that draws Jesus in. Do you hear that? It's your acknowledgement of sin that invites Jesus in and brings him to be present in your life in a healing way, not the absence of sin. We need to know that, remember it. It's a very encouraging word it's also empowering because any community any person who's encountered jesus must do them the same that we must begin to see people the way that jesus sees people and as much as it is in our power as individuals or as a community to bring the healing presence of jesus just as we have been healed we must do so We must be the presence of Jesus to those who are hurting, to those who are suffering, to those who are neglected and overlooked, to those who are struggling or trapped in a sin pattern. This is a passage about seeing, and Jesus sees this suffering man. There's also other people in the passage that see. One of them is the Pharisees. And what do the Pharisees see? Well, they they see what they want to see. A blind beggar is given sight, and it's so confusing to everyone around that they begin to posit, well, maybe it's not the same guy. Maybe it's a different dude. We've been mistaken. And maybe for you, sitting here in 21st century Portland, it's very difficult for you to believe that this miracle could have indeed happened. And you think, well, it's easy for them to believe because they were pre-modern people, they were superstitious people, and of course they believe it. But no one did. No one of these pre-modern people who are supposedly apt to believe these things believed it. They all were confused by it. They all denied that it happened except for the man and the parents. No, it only looks like him, says verse 9. The man has to try and convince them that he's indeed the guy who was earlier in the day this blind beggar. And he tells them, the man Jesus healed him. Well, where is Jesus? Is Jesus here to defend him? No, Jesus has left the building. And so they take him to the religious authorities that they know, the Pharisees. We've got to get this thing figured out. And so we're going to refer this case to the proper authorities. But when something radically new happens, The proper authorities, in this case, are precisely the wrong people to confer with. The man says, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. And then verse 16, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. A guy was blind, and now he sees, and you're concerned when it happened. You're concerned that it happened on the Sabbath. That's what you're going to focus upon. There's an awareness test on YouTube that you can go and you can look at. It's about a minute long, but it's a group of 10 people, half are dressed in black t-shirts and half are dressed in white t-shirts. And the point of the video is that they run around in the circle for about 30 seconds passing two basketballs, and you're supposed to count the ones, uh, that the, the basketball from, that goes from one white person to the next, white person with a white t-shirt to the other person with a white t-shirt and they run around in circles so it's very confusing but it's actually not that difficult to count the number it's 13 but as you're sitting there and you're congratulating yourself i got it right they rewind the tape and ask you if you notice the moonwalking bear or guy in a bear suit who was right in the middle of the screen and moonwalked across the screen and most people don't see it Most people say, I got it, it's 13, and then they rewind it. And there's a moonwalking bear in the YouTube video. Congratulations, you got the number of passes right, but you didn't notice the bear. He healed on the Sabbath? What? Who cares? He healed a blind man, and now he sees. The Pharisees had become experts at keeping score. And so when the one who comes who doesn't keep score, who throws all the positive and negative scores out, when he comes, they call him a sinner. But friends, Jesus isn't a sinner. He keeps God's law perfectly. He's earned the right to keep score. He's earned the right to penalize you and I when we get it wrong. But he doesn't. And here's the the inside scoop on Christianity. Here's the, the secret sauce. It is a God who loves you madly, not because of what you can do for Him, not because you arrived on time this morning, you played all the notes right, not because you kept your theological bona fides polished and dusted, but because it's in His nature to love. And that's what we want to get at each and every Sunday. That's the God who we want to come worship. That's the secret sauce of Christianity, is that there is a God at the center of this story who loves you madly, independent of what you do for Him or what you don't do. He's the one who comes and heals unbelievers and sinners on sacred holy days. He's the one who will love you when everyone else walks away. He's the one who wants you and I to get better, to change, to come to be- to live more like him, but he doesn't withhold his acceptance until we do. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, let me say As an aside, it's actually not true. Sabbath-keeping was very important to Jesus, and so he's not doing away with the idea of the Sabbath. The the law, then, the principle that he's breaking, is all of these practices that the Pharisees had attached to the Sabbath, that they reasoned that you cannot do these certain things. You can't knead bread. And so him kneeling down and working in mud and spitting in it and putting on this guy's eyes, that's what was breaking the Sabbath. Jesus is not breaking the principle of the Sabbath. The Pharisee said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, unrelenting, unconditional grace is scary to those who want to earn it. It's scary to those of us who want to keep score and to make sure no one else gets anything for free. No one takes advantage of God's grace. It's those of us who are keeping watch over that, that unrelenting, unconditional grace scares us to death. And so they overrule him on a technicality. He can't be from God because he doesn't keep our rules. But wait, even a recently blind sinner can see that that's a false start because if he's not from God, then how does he do these things? So they try something else. Maybe this guy is just lying maybe they made it up it's a hoax and if that's the case then we can we're all off the hook so again they ask him but but now the man is not only calling Jesus the man Jesus now he is calling him a prophet he doesn't see everything yet not all the pieces have fallen into place for him but he's moving toward the light the pharisees are moving in the opposite direction and they're getting desperate let's talk now to the parents Maybe they'll shine a light on this, and it will all be put to rest. The parents are afraid, however, and they answer only what they know. They're afraid they're going to get thrown out of the synagogue, and that is a a social and a spiritual death to these people. We know he was blind, we know he is our son, and we know he now sees. So they tell the truth, but they're not willing to speculate on why and on who did it. They say and said beyond that, you'll have to ask him. And so the Pharisees do, again. The second time, they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We know. They've already made their judgment on a priori grounds. This doesn't fit within our system, and so we must reject it. We must throw it out. And this is the sign of a a very calcified theological community. This is how guardians of the boundary respond when something doesn't fit into their status quo, into their system. They appeal to the established order. This can't fit in. But in the gospel, in Jesus' ministry, the, the claim that we see or we know is the sure proof of blindness. And the sad Inevitable journey for, each, for, for those who are blind and refuse to acknowledge it is seeking refuge in deeper and deeper darkness. The Pharisees here, or what John refers to as the Jews, he's not focusing upon their ethnicity. It's, it's just that in this case, in this historical moment, that this mindset that they have is representative of us all that John is trying to use them as an example to get underneath the objections and the pharisaical mindset of his readers. That is, you and I, potentially. Who's the one that receives the light? It's the one who drops pretense. The one who won't hold uncritically to the old way. The one who's willing to inspect their own way of seeing it's the one in this story who becomes the simpleton. The one who takes on the simple gratitude of a child and says, the one thing I know, the one thing I know is that though I was blind, now I see. We've seen Jesus sees the suffering man. The Pharisees see what they want to see. But then finally, a blind man sees the light. If the Pharisees are a stand-in for the human preference for staying in the dark, for avoiding Jesus, then this blind beggar becomes the stand-in for what the religious establishment was meant for. The very thing that God had created Israel to be, this blind beggar in his receiving healing now becomes the stand-in for what that community was meant, meant for and designed to be. He, instead of those steeped in religious practice, becomes the one who points to the light and worships. And we see here that Jesus not only sees hurting people, but he enlists healed people. He not only sees hurting people, but he enlists healed people. we say this time and time again at InTown because we need to hear it, I need to hear it. When we encounter Jesus rightly, you not only experience this personal healing, this personal salvation, but you're enlisted in a cause. You're enlisted in a mission to bring that healing and renewal to others. Jesus mixes this mud and saliva and rubs it on the man's eyes, but he's not healed immediately. He could have done that, but he chooses instead to send him to the pool of Siloam, which means the pool of the scent. And John is making this, this slight little word here. He's dropping this hint in this meaning that he is sent to the pool. He is sent to the pool of the scent. The nation of Israel was meant to be God's sent community. It was a microcosm of God's healing presence that brought in the sick and the poor and the alien and the disabled and the sinner and allowed them to encounter God in the place where he dwelled. But instead, they had built these high ethical boundaries around their community, and they had begun to hoard God's grace. And this is the complaint of the prophets over and over toward the nation of Israel. They railed not towards the behavior or the misbehavior of those outside the camp, the paganism and the pluralism that was happening, what the prophets primarily focused upon was the sin not of the outsider, but of the insider, of the fact that they had restricted God's grace to their own community, that they were no longer a light to the nations, but they had become stingy people. Jesus comes to be the sent one, to recapitulate this mission of Israel, and he gives us picture after picture of who Israel was to be for, and who now he is for, and who in his grace we as the church should be for. The very people that Israel tended to ignore, the very person in this story that people tended to ignore, it's the blind man, it's the one who is overlooked, the one with disabilities. Jesus sees him, he initiates healing And he sends him to the pool of Siloam, the the sent one. And then what happens? He begins to tell his story. We know this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he was a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. He's not intending here to leave the question of Jesus' righteousness, of whether Jesus is a sinner, open for discussion. He's instead saying, your categories don't make sense anymore. Your categories are failing because the one that you call a sinner healed me. He gave me sight. And they keep pressing him. And they move from trying to prove a hoax or a lie into just outright personal attack. Well, you're a sinner from birth. Who are you to try and lecture us? And they drive him out of the synagogue. Social, and spiritual death and excommunication. And it's then that Jesus comes back into the picture. We didn't have time to read this passage all the way through. But in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, isn't that great? Word had gotten out that this man who he had healed probably earlier that morning, has now been thrown out of the synagogue. He now has this big scarlet letter of sinner who no longer fits in. He was an outcast earlier. Now he's an even greater outcast who sees physically and is beginning to see see spiritually. And Jesus gets word, and what does Jesus do? He goes and finds him. He goes and seeks him out. He seeks out the outcast. He seeks out the one with the scarlet letter of sin. He says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? Verse 36. The man asked, Tell me so that I may believe in him. No ego, no defense, no, well, of course, everyone believes in the Son of Man. No. He says, Please tell me. And Jesus says, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. You have now seen him. The light is breaking through into this man's spirit. And the man says, Lord, I believe. And he bows and worshiped him. We see this journey that this man is on, or this man has taken this day. And at first, Jesus is just a man. An inexplicable man, nonetheless, who heals people. But then, later in the story, the man changes his tune. Now he's a prophet. There's something more special about this person. And now he believes. He's the Son of Man. And he worships because of that. There's three stages here. And we'll wrap up here. And these three stages aren't necessarily linear, but they probably represent where all of us are this morning, on one of these stages. First of all, that man. You see, the blind man is not yet intellectually convinced, but he's found Jesus to be existentially satisfying. He's not sure yet that Jesus is true, but he knows that he's good. He knows that Jesus cared for him, when he needed care. Then, he's a prophet. Well, he definitely was something special. The intellectual pieces are beginning to fall into place, but there is still some emotional distance. He believes now he's true, but is he really good? Maybe that's where we find ourselves this morning. We're intrigued by Jesus. We think there's something good in this story, but we're not yet sure if he's true. Or... We believe he's true, but we keep him at an emotional, spiritual distance because we're not really sure if he's good. Jesus stands before this man claiming to be the Son of Man. What you've heard of me is true, but he also sees this man. He goes and finds this man. He cares for him, body and soul. He is also good. And when you link those two things together, that Jesus is true and Jesus is good, then you begin to worship. You say, I believe in you, Jesus. You are the Son of Man. Tell me again this story so that I can believe more fully. And that's what we do in worship each and every week as we proclaim that Jesus is true and Jesus is good, that He is the Son of Man, and that He welcomes all and He invites you into His presence. And we have to wrap our minds around that, And so therefore, in a moment, we will confess our faith. But it doesn't stop there, because we also have to give our lives over to him. And that's why we commission you at the end of the service. And now we come to the table to be refreshed in his truth and to feed upon his goodness. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would continue to work out your truth and your goodness in our lives. I pray that you would not just convince our minds, but that you would convince and draw our hearts unto you. That wherever we are coming from this morning, whether we are a part of In Town, a part of your church, that we believe this story, or whether we still have some great doubts, I pray that we all would encounter you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.